0: Hey, this is Eric, and you're listening to the Story Church Podcast. Our podcast features audio from Sunday mornings at Story Church in Peru, Indiana, a community on the mission of connecting people's story to God's story. If you'd like to connect with us further, check out storyperu.com. Our hope is that today's episode helps you take your next step on your faith journey. We are actually wrapping up this conversation that we've had for the past few weeks on Wonder. We actually kicked it all off at our Christmas experiences, which is awesome getting to celebrate uh, the wonder of Christmas together. But rather than like letting Christmas just be that thing that happens at the end of the year and we celebrate and then it's just January, right? And like (laughs) everything has to start all over. uh, We're trying to like continue to live in light of the miracle of Christmas. like Christmas really did happen that very first Christmas that we celebrated together. Uh, it really did happen and it has implications for how we live our lives here and now on the other side of that first Christmas. So we're trying to tease that out and trying to live in light of it. Uh, and specifically what we talked about at our Christmas experiences is, is that the wonder of the presence of God has filled and floods our world that God is actually with us in in the middle of whatever circumstance you may be facing, uh, whatever you find yourself in the midst of today. We believe wholeheartedly here that you can actually find God with you in the midst of whatever that may be. But what we've talked about through this series is that that's a lot harder than it sounds, right? That it sounds really good to be awake and aware to the wonder of God with us. But when like we have everyday lives to live and, and busy schedules and just other stuff going on, it's so easy for all of us Uh, to just get distracted or miss out maybe on what God is up to in our lives. And on week one, we talked about that. We talked about how it's difficult for us to actually pay attention to where God is at and what God is up to in our lives. We said that we suffer from attention blindness where our attention is pulled in so many different directions. It's like we can focus on one thing at a time, at least if you think like I think, it's like there's blinders on and I can focus on one thing. Uh, But often because of that attention blindness, we don't pay attention to where God is at and what he's doing. We said that God is active in our world, but we often don't have the eyes to see him. And that's a big deal because another thing we said on the first week is that faith, uh, it actually flows from our attention. That where we fix our attention, where we point our hearts and our eyes and our mind, actually shapes where our faith is focused and if our faith grows or not. So this is a big deal. Um, It came with some homework at the end of week one, Uh, challenged all of us for just seven days uh, to take five minutes out of each day. To practice kind of like a quiet meditation or solitude uh, and to reflect on psalm 23 so hopefully uh, you did that at least that first week if you missed it then maybe you picked it up last week if you just like missed the whole program you can start today okay and maybe uh for some of you uh hopefully this has become maybe a new habit right we're in that new year season still maybe for you it's been like a healthy habit for you to slow down at the beginning or the end of your day or maybe at your lunch break and, and just take a second to try and be mindful of like where is god right now in my life and what may he be saying to me. But we practice this idea of paying attention on week one. Then last week, we said there's another thing that keeps us from experiencing the wonder of God in our lives and that thing is often the way that we tend to protect ourselves. That, that all of us have been hurt at some point in life. Uh, all of us have been disappointed at some point or another. And often, in response to those hurts, we try and protect ourselves by shutting down or shrinking back or walling ourselves off. But when we do that, we also shrink our capacity to experience the wonder of life with God. And so, what we said last week is instead of shrinking back to protect ourselves, we actually can embrace God's view on our story. We can embrace God's view on our identity and our circumstances and our calling. We talked about the idea of framing. Uh, It's actually a part of our mission statement here at Story. It's to connect your story to God's story. And and that for us in the midst of whatever you may be facing, one of the healthiest things that you can do and that I can do is to start with the source material of who God says that you are. So as it relates to your identity, uh, we looked at Jesus' baptism last week and we said that Jesus' baptism shows us that each of us are loved as sons and daughters of God before we say or do anything that you don't have to prove your worth to God because God calls you worthy from the very start. He made you in his image. He loves you and he calls you his son or his daughter. And that's where we can start in terms of our identity as it relates to our struggles and our circumstances. We said that we all go through difficult things in life, but our struggles don't have the final word, that there's always hope, that at some day, Jesus promises he'll redeem everything that we go through. And in light of that, we can stay open uh, to our experience in life. And we talked about this idea of calling, which is kind of a loaded word. But what we said in that is that God has a purpose for your life, that God uh, actually uniquely has a calling for you that lines up with the way that he's wired you and your passions and some of the opportunities and relationships that are in front of you. And so our job is to be open to what that may be and to be willing to step into that. So, Again, that's where we've been. All of this has been on a journey for us to try and rediscover what it means for us to live awake and aware to the wonder of God with us. And and the reason we're talking about it is because we live in a disenchanted world. Uh, We've said that every single week that there's this tendency in all of our lives, especially as we grow older and maybe as we have more responsibility or feel more pressure on our lives. It's like we get so caught up in the stuff we have to do and and the pressure that we feel that we lose that childlike wonder. We lose that awareness of God with us. And uh, this idea of disenchantment was a phrase coined by a secular scholar named Charles Taylor who studied basically the difference between the ancient world or even like the middle ages versus where we find ourselves culturally today that in, in the ancient world in an enchanted world almost everybody believed in God right? Like back then they believed in dragons and that kind of stuff too. But they also believed like God was with them, that the spirit, like the spiritual world was a part of this world as well. And they believed that they didn't live within a universe that was meaningless and void, but rather they lived in a cosmos, this ordered view of the world where God was in charge. And even in the things that they didn't know, or they didn't understand, there was room for mystery. There was room for limited knowledge. But in our disenchanted world, we kind of swing the polar opposite way, right? We act like, Maybe at best, God got the whole thing started and then just kind of sit back and like watches it run. And then it's up to us to dissect everything and understand everything and work it all out. Uh, We believe that what you see is what you get. We trust in science and technology and none of those things are bad things. Okay, I've said it every week, big fan of the flush toilet and all the other advancements that we've had over the years. Uh, But the challenge for our faith is if the world is disenchanted, it means God's distant. If the world is disenchanted, then it's like God's not actively involved, and that's the opposite of what Jesus said and what Jesus modeled for us. In fact, uh, despite all of this tension that we live in and this difficulty we have experiencing wonder, uh, I hope you've seen so far throughout this series that wonder is actually an essential part of following Jesus, that you can't really like open-heartedly with your whole life follow Jesus if you're not open to his presence with you, if you're not aware that he is in this world, that he is working in and through your life. And we've probably all experienced a moment of wonder at some point along the way, right? Maybe you were on vacation somewhere, you saw the Grand Canyon for the first time or some beautiful scene in nature, maybe it's your favorite song or, or some kind of artwork that moves you. But we've had these moments, right? Where it's like life feels bigger than us for a minute. It's almost like a transcendent experience. Uh, but what we've been saying through this series is that rather than wonder being this exterior destination that just like pops up sometimes when we see something beautiful, the wonder that we're talking about, it's actually an internal posture. It's an internal filter we can have that we view the world through, that we actually look for the activity of God in and through our lives and in our very real world. So like I said, we talked on week one about how disenchantment uh, comes from our distraction. And on week two, we talked about how sometimes disenchantment happens when we protect ourselves. This week, as we wrap things up, I want to turn our attention to a different source of disenchantment. And it's almost, I think it might be one of the trickiest ones, like for us to wrap our head around, because it's so common and it's so unassuming. And it actually seems like a good thing in some ways, but if we approach it in the wrong way, it can totally distract us from what God may be up to in our lives. And that thing is familiarity. Familiarity. I think familiarity might be the thing that makes most of us lose our sense of wonder in life. And the tension-filled thing with familiarity is familiarity in and of itself, it seems like a good thing. Right? Like we all like life to be pretty predictable if we're honest. We all like to know what to expect. It's the reason, like if you're new here and you walk into church, we try and make it very easy because, like it's scary to walk into a new environment for the first time. If I ever go guest speak at a church, I'm always put back in the shoes of first- time guests because it's like you walk in, you're like, "Ah, who are these people, right? Where do I go? Is there coffee? That's why we try and give you the coffee mug. It's like, thanks for putting up with the stress of trying it out., uh, but we like familiarity. Familiarity, it's found in the rhythms and the routines that we have in our days. Like I, I like to be a creature of habit. If I don't wake up earlier, which I should wake up earlier, but like my deadline for the morning, it's 6.20 because I've got to wake up my daughter uh, at 6.30. And so 6.20 gives me enough time to go downstairs, turn on the coffee pot, use the restroom, pour the coffee and then get back upstairs to wake her up on the dot. Uh, we hang out for like 15 minutes, whether it's reading stories or playing. Uh, she's like on a timer for me, we hit 6.45 we go potty, right, we do our thing. And then by seven, I like hand her off to Ashley and then I'm off with my day. But like every day, that's how I try and run things. Cause it's like that routine helps it be predictable for me. Uh, I'm a creature of habit as it relates to the routes that I drive, right? Familiarity helps us. In fact, probably like the first decade after I moved out of my parents' house, if I was driving in Kokomo, if I wasn't careful, I would just find myself like by default driving back towards their neighborhood. And half the time I'd be with Ashley, she's like, where are you going? And I'm like, my parents' house. <laughs> But why, right? It's like I just fell back into the routine uh, of doing that. Familiarity, it's a helpful thing for us, right? Familiarity is that thing that enables you to be able to walk through your living room at night when it's dark out and the kids left the Legos out on the floor. It's the thing that like allows you to chart a course through all that chaos. Familiarity categorizes things for us. It's, It's what shows up when we move things from new to known. It's where we move things from unsafe and unknown to safe. And, and understood, right? And, and and so that's not a bad thing. And in fact, being familiar with God in a certain sense seems like it should be the goal. Like on week one, we talked about paying attention to God. And maybe you're like, Eric, how are you saying familiarity is now the problem? Because I thought I was supposed to turn my attention to God. And, and if I'm really spending all this time with God, like Aren't I going to get familiar with him and get get, like to know him better? Isn't that a good thing? And in and of itself, yes, it is, right? I do want you to draw close to God and to get to know God and to learn more about him. But I think the problem is often in our familiarity, we start to make assumptions. We start to make assumptions about what God is like and about what this world is like and about what people are really like. And our faith and our experience of God, if we're not careful, it can become another routine, right? It can be another go through the motions thing. And that's an okay starting point. Again, like if you just wandered into church today, because church is just what you do on Sundays, that's a good starting point. But there's so much more to life and so much more to faith than stopping there. In fact, have you ever been in a relationship, like a long-term relationship, that like at the very beginning, right, there's that honeymoon phase where it's like, oh, everything's amazing and you're infatuated. But then over the years, it just kind of got stale. It got stagnant. It's like you fell into your rhythms and your routines and uh, the excitement of that relationship just kind of drifted away. Maybe it happened for you at work. Like you were so excited when you first got your job and you were learning all the new things, but you've been there for 15 years now and you know how it all works, right? (laughs) You know the same rhythm. You know you're gonna face the same problems year after year after year, and they're gonna offer the same crazy solutions and you're gonna try them because you get a paycheck, but you're like, we're just gonna keep doing this thing on and on and on. It's easy for us when we get familiar with anything, a relationship, a job, our surroundings, it's easy for us to jump to conclusions. It's easy for us to start to say things to ourselves like everything's gonna stay the same, right? Nothing changes around here and I don't have the power to change anything. And so in that, we diminish our sense of wonder in life. And often I think the assumptions that familiarity prompts us to make are the very barriers that keep us from finding God in unexpected places. And by the way, do you remember where we started this whole conversation? We started it at Christmas. And Christmas was like the most unexpected arrival of God in our world ever. If you were to imagine, or just like man on the street, ask people who don't know the story, like how do you think God would show up in our world? You would imagine like there would be this huge spectacular display, right? Or maybe he would ride in with an army to go conquer. He'd have a lightning bolt at least or something. But, But that's not the story at all. In fact, we almost like fancy up the story because the story as it's recorded in scripture is so extraordinarily ordinary. A baby is born. A baby is born in this messy situation and nobody knew what it meant and and everybody was confused. God shows up in an unexpected way and Jesus continues to be unexpected as he grows up and as he moves on with his ministry. In fact, one of the most common things that Jesus said as he was talking about the kingdom of God or what it looks like when God gets his way here on earth, uh, he would teach and he would say, hey, you've heard it said, but I say. He would take the familiar thing. He would say, you've heard it said this, but I say that, and he would just constantly like turn upside down people's expectations of what God might say or what God might actually be like. And in fact, we talked about how the account of Jesus' life, it actually moves pretty quickly in the beginning few chapters, regardless of which gospel you're reading. uh, It starts out and it's like, little baby Jesus is born, he's in the manger. Sometimes a couple accounts talk about him getting lost in the temple to make all of his parents feel a little better about how we're doing. And then uh, he's baptized, which we talked about last week. Immediately after his baptism, Jesus goes out into the desert to be tempted by the devil, which I hope does not happen after your baptism, if you're ever interested in taking uh, that next step here. That's not like part of the program typically. But Jesus goes out into the wilderness, into the desert. He's tempted by the devil. And then immediately after that experience, the text picks up and it says this. It says that Jesus, when he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went on as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him and he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant and sat down and all eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Do you see the familiarity even showing up in that story, right? It's like Jesus had these extraordinary experiences. He's baptized. He wrestles with the devil and wins. And then he like walks back to his hometown, his boyhood hometown, where everybody knew his name, right? He was that kid from Nazareth. And he goes back to Nazareth as usual. He goes to the temple to read the scroll that they've read However many times, right, because it's just what you do. You go to church or synagogue in this case. He reads the scroll and he reads it just as it's written. He rolls it up, hands it back to the attendant. But the text says all eyes were on him, right? He's doing routine. He's doing familiar. He does the thing. And then Jesus flips the script. It says all eyes were on him. And then he began to speak to them. The scripture that you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be? They asked, isn't this Joseph's son? So we kind of lose it in our context, but this is like an amazing mic drop moment that Jesus does. So Jesus gets up, he reads this prophecy from Isaiah that promises one day God is going to heal blindness and free people from oppression and the poor will be blessed and the favor of the Lord is going to show up right here and right now. And so Jesus reads that and then he sits down, stands back up and goes, by the way, that starts now, right, like, like I'm fulfilling that right now, I'm inaugurating God's kingdom right here and right now, if you want to view it in that way, and the people are like, whoa, right, because that's a pretty bold claim to do, It'd be like if I read the Bible today, and then be like, hey, by the way, that's about me, which I'm not saying, okay, for the record, <laughs> but uh, Jesus does that, and the people are like, wow, but then like the familiarity creeps back in, right, because they're like, wait, 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 isn't that Joseph's boy, right, like, remember him? The carpenter's kid, like, remember the way he used to run around? Like, he's the fulfillment of that prophecy that we've heard for generations? Like, are you serious? And so then Jesus goes on, and he royally messes things up from here, in the people's eyes, at least. Because Jesus kind of hears them grumbling, and then he says, hey, you will undoubtedly quote me on this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. Meaning, do miracles here in your hometown like those that you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. And then Jesus actually kind of rants a little bit about all the reasons he's not going to like do amazing miracles in his hometown. And it says, when they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. It's like, that escalated quickly, right? It's like Jesus reads the scroll. He says, hey, by the way, this is fulfilled. This is happening, uh, but I'm not gonna do any miracles here. And the people are like, what? And they very aggressively suddenly run him to the edge of the cliff and try and like knock him out for good. But Jesus just like strolls through because he's Jesus, I guess. Uh, but what happened there, right? Jesus made this extraordinary claim and the people were excited. They were like, that, that's amazing. Like, who is this guy who speaks like this? But when he didn't show up like the people wanted, like the people expected. When he didn't show up in the familiar way, then the people turned on him. And we can read that and again, it kind of seems like wow, that got out of hand fast. <laughs> like that was aggressive. But the truth is, I think the mob's response in this moment, it's not all that different from our own response. When God doesn't show up in the way that we expect, for many of us, we're like, "What?" At best we're like, "What?" Most of us were disappointed, we're hurt, or we're angry. And we're like, "God, where were you?" Like, "Why didn't you show up?" like I wanted you to. And and sometimes I think in our like everyday normal life, even if circumstances are good, sometimes our assumptions about how God or about how people should show up and what people should be like in our world often can cause us to rush into judgment of them. That that often uh, when our expectations aren't met, we rush to judgment. And uh, the psychotherapist Carl Jung uh, one time said this, he said, thinking is difficult and that's why most people judge. There's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? The <laughs> like thinking is difficult and that's why most people judge. And I think the truth is uh, this happens in our lives, right? It's difficult to push pause and to slow down and to challenge our assumptions and to really get curious and ask questions. So so many of us, we just spend our time making snap judgments about everything, right? We, we get familiar and we know and we assume the way that things work. And so we just judge, 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 left and right. And I think one reason this can feel so natural for so many of us It's that when we operate out of an unhealthy familiarity, right, this unhealthy confidence that we know what's right and we know what we know, we get arrogant. When we operate out of unhealthy familiarity, we get arrogant because we can be people who think we have the solutions to everyone's problems. And unfortunately, churches can be the worst offenders in this way, right? Christians can be the people who show up as answer people all the time, and it's like just Jesus will fix everything or something, and we show up, uh, and we can become black and white, right and wrong, I know better types of thinkers who show up in our unhealthy familiarity, and we get arrogant, and we try and be everybody's hero, Right? We try and show up and like, I can fix you, or I know what you need. Or if you would just think like I think, then things would be better. And it's all really fueled by this certainty or this familiarity we have about what God is like and how people are. That's really just about arrogance. We heard from uh, Pastor Jonathan Martin quite a bit last week. I want to share one more thing he wrote um, just reflecting on how Christians are actually supposed to show up in the world versus how we often show up in the world. He said what the world needs now are signposts of what's ahead, markers for the new world just around the corner. The world does not need heroes. The world does not need more Messiah complexes. The world does not need Christians who want to ride in on a white horse and save the day. What the world needs are witnesses, nothing more and nothing less. The earth needs people who can bear witness to the ways in which the world has already changed through the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. See, he's saying there's this difference between showing up and trying to be the hero with all the answers, with all of our certainty and all of our familiarity that we know better. There's a difference between showing up as a hero versus showing up as a witness. Somebody who's just like, hey, I've seen what God is like, right? I I know what God is like. I know what God can do for you. Come see with me. It's this difference between offering solutions versus offering solidarity with somebody. And and so often the familiarity leads us into that arrogant place. And honestly, this difference between showing up as a hero versus uh, the more transformative work of being a witness reminds me of what happened in the story of the Apostle Paul and if you don't know, the Apostle Paul is a big deal in Christianity. He was a church planter who went all around the Mediterranean rim in the first century and talked about Jesus and planted little church communities and raised up leaders, and he wrote letters to those communities which make up over half of the New Testament, over half of the like back half of your Bible. In fact, uh, Paul is arguably the second most influential person in all of Christianity, second only to Jesus, And in so many ways, Paul is a guy who went on to shape our Western world and shape our society through his thinking. But Paul didn't start out as the Apostle Paul. Paul started out as a man named Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus was a religious leader. He was a Pharisee. He was a guy with unhealthy familiarity because he knew what he believed, right? He knew the law backwards and forwards. He had certainty. He had confidence around what God is like. And so when Saul initially heard the news of what Jesus had done, when he initially heard the good news of the church and where it was all headed, uh, Saul didn't initially think it was good news, mostly because he didn't understand the good news. Through his familiarity filter, he viewed the, the church, or as they were known in that day, the way or, or the Nazarene sect, he viewed them as this like little cult of people who were just making up new rules and, and bending the way that uh, God actually operated. He got this version of the news. And, and as a Pharisee, Right, His future and his finances and his relationships and his popularity and everything about him was tied to the familiar way that God operated. So for him, like he just heard this new church movement as a threat, and he's like, there's no way that's what God is up to, which that's just kind of a sidebar. But isn't it true that the people who benefit the most from the status quo are often the slowest to let it go? They're often the slowest to embrace change because they benefit from it. So that was, that was Saul. He was in this spot where... He was familiar with the old ways, with the religious way that people had interacted with God, and he hears about the church movement, and he goes, you know what, I got to shut it down. And so Saul basically believes he's deputized by God to go out and stop the church, and he starts persecuting Christians. He, He kills Christians. He's on a mission to stop the movement, to stop the good news from spreading. He persecutes Christians until he becomes one, and it's a really dramatic story, and I'm not gonna read it all to you today, but basically what happens is Saul is on his way to go persecute some more Christians, and he has this moment where he's, he's suddenly blind, and he doesn't understand what's happening, and he's trying to work through it, and he sees this like light, even though he can't see, and he has this encounter with Jesus, essentially. And in that moment, Saul asks a really compelling question. He doesn't know what he's experiencing, he's trying to figure it out, but he asks, who are you, Lord? And he hears this reply, that says, I am Jesus who you're persecuting. And he has this encounter with Jesus and from that moment, his life has changed. He has this encounter with Jesus and whatever happens in that moment, he stops being Saul of Tarsus, the guy trying to stop the church. And he becomes Paul, eventually the apostle Paul, who plants churches, right? who moves the mission forward. And just as a sidebar today, like I wonder for some of us, if you're struggling with this idea of awe and wonder and awareness of where God may be at in your life, I wonder if like this week, what if you took Saul's question and you made it the question that you ask God? You just say, who are you? Right? Who are you, God? Who are you, Jesus? Like, will you show up and will you speak to me? I bet if he did that in that five minutes of quiet time we were working on, right, you might discover a little more awareness of God and, and active in your life. But at any rate, what's remarkable is Paul moves from this moment, and he spends the rest of his ministry actually trying to protect the church against this very thing that we're all tempted to do. He tries to protect the church about falling back into the familiarity of this religious approach to God. He he fights against the religious impulse that all of us face to use our faith like a weapon, to do the very thing that Saul was initially doing, right? He's like, hey, no, no, I know what that was like, but look, there's something different now. God's showing up in unexpected ways. And I think the sad truth is often that black and white, right or wrong, my way or the highway approach to faith that's often characterized by the law and the Old Testament, for too many Christians, that clarity is preferred to the high expectations of Jesus. Because we love like the clear list of do's and don'ts, right? We love the clear list of who's in and who's out and how we actually approach it. But Jesus's command to us it is so much more simple and so much more demanding. It was to do whatever love requires of us. And that requires some wrestling, right? Some, some clarity. Like, what do you, we have to work through it. it it's so difficult. And, and unfortunately, much like religious leaders back when the church was first starting, there are too many of us who are more interested in control and clarity than we're interested in what's best for people. And, and so this this thing that we have to guard against. We're often caught without awe and wonder, without openness to God showing up in unexpected ways. And rather we operate with defensiveness and fear and with the same attitude as that angry crowd in Nazareth or Saul of Tarsus, right? Going out to stop the people getting it wrong. To illustrate what I'm talking about today, um, I wanna talk about lawns for just a second, okay? Cause it's cold and it's gray and snowy and stuff. But I just want you to remember that one day the world will be green again. Okay, like one day the earth will reawaken. And and, uh, if you're like me, when that happens, I suddenly get very into lawn care. Not very good at it, but very into it. Like I watch a couple of YouTube channels uh, where like guys will just talk about like, this is the product you need to put on your lawn and here's how you need to aerate it. And like, I just do a deep dive on like lawn care for a couple of weeks every single year. And there's people who like, it's their hobby, right? To have the best lawn. Ever. We cut it, we fertilize it, we trim it, we edge it. Some people actually color their lawns so that they look really nice and healthy. Uh, and no matter how good your lawn is, right, we all have probably experienced that twinge of jealousy when you're walking around the neighborhood and you see like the grandmaster who has the perfect lawn, the lawn that looks better than your lawn. I mean, like, we love it so much. We think nothing of watering our lawns and trimming our lawns and spending uh, sizable amounts of time, like, making sure that we get the perfect alternating mower lines and just, like, making it all beautiful, making sure there's no weeds. The perfect lawn, it's like it epitomizes our American value of uniformity and symmetry and balance and neatness. Like, we love lawns so much that it is a $27 billion industry in America, which is 10 times as much as we spend on school textbooks, by the way. (laughs) that's just a sidebar. Uh, (laughs) But the thing about lawns is what if I told you that like lawns actually break every single rule of nature. That lawns like like that kind of lawn is a freak of nature. That's not the way that nature actually works because the lawn is is known as a monoculture, right? There's like one plant that we're trying to grow and we're trying to make it look beautiful and trying to keep all those weeds out. But every law on the nature handbook tells our planet to strive for biodiversity to strive for, for diversity in terms of the plants that grow. Uh, biodiversity is life in our world, and monocultures are always on the verge of death, which is why your lawn needs so much attention, right? It's why you constantly have to treat it and feed it and water it and maintain it, and it can't survive without these phosphate-based fil- fertilizers and all of your pesticides and herbicides and all this stuff. And uh, Because we keep feeding it and watering it, the root system for our lawns are pathetic right? It's why you can just pull up clumps of grass. The roots never grow all that deep because they need so much care to stay that monoculture. Uh, There's a journalist and professor named Michael Pollan who writes about food and agriculture, and he said it in this way. He says the lawn is nature under totalitarian rule, right? Your your lawn is nature, but it's like locked down. There's one way to operate, And, and if you're willing to listen, your weeds are telling you that, because right? weeds when they show up in your lawn they're like the stormtroopers or like the d-day parachuters who like drop in and they're like we're taking back over right like we're gonna repopulate we're gonna bring diversity back it mobilizes its forces to try and bring diversity and beauty back to that monoculture and what happens if you're like me and you don't keep up with it right weeds show up first and, and they show up in little areas and then eventually they spread and eventually they grow and all of a sudden there's all this diversity and they're deeper Longer, stronger roots get down. And all of a sudden they start mixing up that monoculture and they create biodiversity again and all kinds of plants start to grow. And in fact, if you just let it go, eventually there's like shrubs and there's trees and other things that will grow again on your lawn. There's a fascinating book called The World Without Us, uh, which was written by a guy named Alan Wiseman. And he basically calculated how long it would take for our world to change if like humans just abandoned cities. And by his calculations, he determined that if the human race just completely abandons a city, that city would start looking like a forest in just five years. That, that the plants would like just come back in and start to regrow and start to re-diversify. Uh, within 20 years, the buildings would start to come down. And within 200 years, the place would be fully colonized with trees and basically turned back into a forest. Because like nature is constantly moving towards that diversity and towards that difference, right? Nature is constantly alive and active and, and doing unexpected things. And I think this picture is a powerful image of how we tend to operate towards God versus how God is operating and at work in our world. Right? So many of us want perfect law and faith. So many of us want the controlled, the understandable, that I do my part and it looks the same and it never changes. But the kingdom of God looks so much more like that forest. Right? The kingdom of God is this living and active thing that has been unleashed in the world through Jesus. And, and like if you imagine, take my metaphor apart for a second, imagine just like a perfect lawn like that sitting next to a forest like that and just leaving it unattended. Do you know what would happen? The forest would run, run wild over that lawn. It would take over again. That's what the kingdom of God wants to do to our world. And that lawn, that image of the safe and controlled world, it looks like the stuff that all of us can fall into, consumerism, greed, injustice of any kind, violence, all these things that break God's heart that so many of us like we just fall into and we're maintaining this broken system. If left to its own devices, the lawn would be no batch for the forest and it would be converted from uniformity and neatness into wild, messy diversity in no time. And that is what the kingdom of God should look like. The kingdom of God deals with messy, uncontrollable things like peace, and justice, and mercy, and hospitality, and generosity that they're difficult to control if they're done right. It, the kingdom of God looks more like this wet, fertile ecosystem where things are just growing and moving like crazy than a boring, uniform lawn. And, and the reason I want to use this word picture, right, it's like think about your lawn, what's going to happen this spring, you'll get started, and then eventually there's going to be a dandelion, right? Like the, those weeds are going to pop up, unless you're amazing, and if you're amazing, teach me your ways. But those weeds, when they show up, they're actually a foretaste of a forest that could be, right? They're they're these weeds popping up saying like, diversity can grow again. Uh, They're an instrument and a foretaste of a forest that's yet to come. And they drop into this dying lawn, really, with the promise of new life. That's how we're supposed to operate in the world too, right? We're supposed to be, as Jesus followers, a foretaste of a kingdom that is here, but not yet, right? A a kingdom that is now, but is still yet to come. And, And nobody likes weeds okay so like people might not like you showing up and messing up their monochrome world but it's the calling god has in our lives to be people who drop into dark and dead places and bring hope and bring light and we can only do that when we open ourselves up to the unexpected when we open ourselves up to the wonder of god with us when we open ourselves up to the truth that maybe we don't have to control so much to actually live faithfully Maybe it's more about an openness in our posture to what God may want to do. So in that spirit, as we we're wrapping up, to bring it back to the practical level, okay? We're not going to talk about lawns anymore. But, but to bring it to a kind of a practical close here, to disrupt our familiarity that can grow so unhealthy for us, to disrupt our certainty that can grow so stale, two questions for you as we wrap up. One is what familiar pattern exists in your life that you actually need to disrupt? What familiar pattern do you have that you need to intentionally disrupt to open yourself to the unexpected? Like, is there something that you've fallen into that's no longer serving you for the reason that you started it? Maybe it's even good stuff like quiet time or whatever, but it's just like this thing you check off and you don't even think about it. Is there something or some habit that you started that at one time served you, but you need to disrupt it uh, to add in space for something new? Maybe it's not. Maybe it's the opposite, right? Maybe the pace of your life is the problem and you need to add in some space. You need to add in some room for reflection. Maybe there's old habits that you're still fighting that are holding you back. Maybe it's time for you to say, you know what, I'm going to disrupt that pattern in my life so that something new can start, so that God could do something unexpected. I was thinking about this this week, um, and I'm kind of embarrassed to even talk about this, but Uh, We were a part of something as churches, uh, a collective group of churches called Multiply Indiana, which is a group of uh, 30-something churches all throughout the state who are trying to raise up more disciples and followers of Jesus and plant new churches. And so we had this night of worship uh, on Friday night. We invited all of our churches to come together. It was down at Clues Hall. Uh, There were like 2,200 people, I think, who reserved a spot. So it was going to be this huge, amazing event. And I ended up going down there on Friday um, to help lead it and represent our church. And to be honest, I had a terrible attitude about it. Okay, up here on Sunday, I'm like, yeah, yeah, let's go and let's do it. But I'm like, it's Friday night. I've got to drive an hour and a half right down here. I don't know if anybody from Peru is going to come, right? It's just going to be me anyway. And I don't know anybody. And I was all grumpy about it. And then as I let that grumpiness grow, the event was amazing, by the way. We can show you a picture of it. But as I let that grumpiness grow, like cynicism started to sneak in a little bit for me, if I'm honest. Because I'm like, I've been doing this for a decade now like, church stuff, and I've been on, like, arts teams and worship, and I was, like, drifting into this, like, I know how the sausage is made, right? (laughs) Like, they're going to play all the real moody, emotional songs, and and the lights are going to dim down low, and it's going to be really emotional and really expressive, which it was all of those things, and that's wonderful, right? (laughs) That's all good, Uh, but I was just in this, like, kind of bitter, cynical spot about it, and, and just, like, I even... I went into like twisted pastor land where I'm like, and how many of these people actually serve in their churches? (laughs) How many of them actually give? How many of them are just like a big show? And like, I was just all kinds of funky about it. And then there I was on stage, right? Like praying because pastors are real people too, if you didn't know. Uh, But then I had this moment, we we did this thing at the end of the experience. Okay. So we'd been singing, it was like two hours long. And then at the end, uh, there was this moment where we did like a commissioning service where we uh, sent people out and actually prayed for them so anybody who was in that room who said yeah i want to commit and i want to influence 12 people for jesus in my lifetime which is a super low bar by the way but we were like "If, if somebody's like yeah i'll influence 12 people in my lifetime we had them step out and we had them pray and i was one of the pastors who was standing by the sidelines right bitter old cynical me standing there on the sidelines and people came up and this line formed and it was just like story after story of ordinary people saying yes to what they felt like God was leading them to, right? One guy was like, I'm a baseball coach and I wanna use my influence there, so will you pray for me? So I prayed for him and, and then the next guy comes up. This guy was like, hey, I was in prison eight months ago. I'm like, oh, what'd you do? <laughs> Should I be concerned? No, I didn't ask that. But he's like, I was in prison and now I feel like God wants to use that experience. He's changed my life and he wants to use that experience so I can reach other people in prison, right? I wanna start a jail ministry, so I pray for this guy to have a jail ministry. i <laughs> just I'm sitting there and I'm like, right, the big show, the stage, all that kind of stuff, it's great and, and it's necessary and worship's not just a show. Like I'm not, But I was sitting there all bitter and like the whole time and then here's all these extraordinary shows of faith dropped in my lap and it was disruption, right? It was disruption. I didn't find God in that moment in the big songs or in the big hands raised expressions. I found God in ordinary people saying yes to what they were felt called to do. And so my point in sharing all that is like, that's something for me where I'm like, man, I gotta disrupt my assumption that I know how things go and I know what's going on in people's hearts and I know how it's gonna be, right? So I'm working on that one, but what's a pattern in your life that you need to disrupt to open yourself up to where God may be? And then the second question is what familiar pattern in your world do you need to disrupt? Because there's our inner world, right? We need to work on that. But there's also the assumptions that we make about our world, the way that things are, right? the the way that your neighbors are, the reason why your neighbors are the way that your neighbors are, the assumptions that you make about who and how people are and why they are, what if you disrupted those a little bit? I think the way that we could do that is instead of holding on to our unhealthy familiarity, what if we practiced humble curiosity? We actually asked better questions of people instead of just making assumptions and judgments about them. Uh, Jonathan Martin, in his book, One More Time, Uh, It was talking about something he heard from John Wesley, who is a a great pastor in the Wesleyan and Methodist tradition. Uh, He says this, he says he was moved by John Wesley's line, the world is my parish or the world's my church. And he decided he was going to be the pastor of everyone in his neighborhood, whether they acknowledged me as such or not. He said, I didn't need their permission to love them like mad, listen to their stories and be their friend. And what else is a pastor supposed to do? I read that in his book and I just thought, man, we can all do that right? And how different would our world look if instead of like just rushing home and closing the garage door, closing the door behind us and standing in judgment of one another from across the street, what if the people of Story Church, right? Jesus followers, Christians started to view our neighborhoods as our parish, (laughs) as our group of people that we're called to love and to get to know and to come alongside. I think it would be a lot easier for us to experience the wonder of God if we were open to that kind of move. But here's the point with this whole series. It's that we live in a disenchanted world, but we don't have to. In fact, we're supposed to be a foretaste of God's presence here with us. And so rather than living distracted, we can actually live attentive to where God is at and what God is doing when we slow ourselves down enough to look. Rather than being protected and walled off and shrinking back, we can live open to God's view of us. We can frame our story through the lens of his story. And rather than just living in comfortable familiarity, we can actually live with this expectant curiosity of what God may want to do next in our lives. And when we do so, I think we'll wake up to the wonder of God with us. As we wrap up, Um, I want to read one verse just kind of over you, almost like a benediction or a prayer. And and it's from the message translation of the Bible, but it's one of my favorite translations. It's something that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And he says this, he says, this resurrection life that you've received from God, right? That's the the gift we receive from God when we say, hey, I want to follow Jesus. And he gives us his identity. This resurrection life that you've received from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It is adventurously expectant, greeting God with a childlike what's next, Papa? Let me pray for you. God, I pray that our hearts could look like that, that where we've grown bitter and cynical and familiar and arrogant, and where we think that we know how you operate and who you welcome in and who you push away, and, and just when we get so charged up about these things, when we move towards judgment instead of curiosity, God, I pray that you would open up our hearts that instead of being grave tenders, we would be adventurously expectant of how you want to show up in our lives each day. And so God, I pray uh, for that childlike faith in each of us, that we could learn to pay attention to you, that we would listen to you first for who we are and how this world is, that your view on our stories matters most. And again, God, that we would stay open to however you want to show up in our lives. God, may it be so uh, as we leave this place. We pray all of that in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in or near the Peru, Indiana area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. To find directions, service times, and information about our environments for kids, visit us at storyperu.com.